Welcome to Ask AI, the podcast that brings you insightful interviews and news from the world of Canadian artificial intelligence. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft Canada. Microsoft is committed to building trusted and responsible AI systems. To learn more, go to microsoft.com AI and check out their free AI business school to start building intelligence into your solutions today. We're also sponsored by Sinchi, the global leader in data fabric technology. Visit Sinchi.com to learn how to eliminate integration and turbocharge your AI transformation. Hello, everyone. Again, this is Jackson Kahn, the host of the Ask AI podcast. Today, we're very excited to be joined by folks from Next Canada and Next AI, fantastic accelerator based out of Toronto and in Canada that trains some of our top and equips some of our top entrepreneurs in the country. I'm excited to be joined by Joe Canavan, who is the CEO of Next Canada. Joe is an icon in the financial services industry. He's had extensive experience building companies, investing in companies, and now has taken on his most recent role. He's also invested in a couple of the top digital ventures in Canada, including Wealthsimple and Coho. I'm also joined here by Patricia Thane. Patricia is a computer science PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. She works with the Vector Institute as well on natural language processing. And more recently, she is the co-founder and CEO of Private AI, which is a Toronto and Berlin-based startup that creates a suite of privacy tools, and they make it easier for developers and service providers to comply with data protection, regulations, cybersecurity, and more. Trisha and Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jackson. Great to be here. Yeah, honored. Thanks so much, guys. Well, to get started off, Joe, just wanted to ask you first, are you able to give us a general background in Next Canada and more specifically talk about the mission of Next AI? Absolutely. Jackson, as I said, I'm honored to be part of this. I was honored 10 years ago, really, when I was invited by, at the time, potential founders of Next Canada. It was Reza Sachu, Jay Agarwal, Tim Hodgson, and Claudia Hepburn. And they came to my office when I was turning around a company called Asante Wealth Management. And I had done a bunch of startups before that. And they said, listen, we want to pitch you our idea. Please feel free to beat the crap out of it and tell us it's either dog meat or it's really great, whatever. <laughs> but we want you to be entirely honest. And I have to say, because when I was starting my first and second companies, I was still in my 20s and early 30s. And I flipped through the deck with them. And by page four, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to bring all these incredible resources, all these incredible academics from Harvard and Stanford and MIT and Rotman and mentorship and professional services like EY and OSO. I was just like, are you kidding me? This is a phenomenal idea. I wouldn't have made so many ridiculous mistakes if I'd had all those tools and resources. So for me, I loved the idea and they kept shopping it around. And I guess about six months later, they came back and said, listen, you were easily the most excited person that we pitched this to. Is there any chance that you might agree to be on our board. So I think I became the very first board member. And then not that long ago, some things had changed and happened at Next as it had grown and evolved. And one thing led to another. And I'd already done this once before. I'd stepped off a board at Children's Aid Foundation to come in and fix what wasn't working there and replace myself two years later with a new CEO. This wasn't a broken thing. This is a great business. But there was an issue and the board said, would you step off and into this role? And, and that's why I'm here today. I loved it when it was just an idea. I cannot believe the talent that Next 
whether it's Next36, Next AI, or Next Founders has produced. And to be now in the role day to day, rebuilding the leadership team, strategy, visioning, the messaging, I feel really excited for everything that has been built before I came into this role and now being in this role. And the future just looks incredible. That's incredibly exciting, Joe, and very interesting to see the actual pathway that that has sort of evolved for you. I, I know for me, a next candidate has always been so fascinating, um, sort of back to the early days of the next 36. I've even had friends who've gone through the program, whether that's Daniel Roddick or Alyssa Atkins, Emily Cushman, I mean, all awesome founders who've, who've gone on to do incredible things and be great alumni of the program. That being said, I mean, a lot has changed since that initial vision. I know now even spinning off from some of the original programs, the Next 36, the Next Founders, and now we have Next AI. I was wondering if you might want to talk about some of the biggest evolutions of the program. And, and for those who maybe are less familiar, what's really new and what's exciting about the offerings now? I think what was really incredible about the leadership team and the board was instead of just doing the same thing over and over, they were constantly in contact. For instance, when Claudia Hepburn was the head of the organization, she would be reaching out to the major donors, which were all mostly entrepreneurs, people like Galen Weston, Paul Demery Sr., Jimmy Pattison, and getting their feedback, some of our big corporate clients, RBC, Magna, and trying to understand where they saw the future. One of the things that I found with billionaires and with really visionary companies is they have a 20-year vision, 10-year vision, 5-year vision, and so on. And they would share with Claudia and with other people that led this organization where they thought the future was going to be and where we might position ourselves so that we would be ready for that future. So Next AI was one of those initiatives. Don Walker, who's the CEO of Magna, was hosting a group of people at his cottage. And I think Dave Mackay was one of them, the CEO of RBC, who's a great partner of ours. I think Don Galoin, when he was running Manulife, was on the dock. I think the prime minister was on the dock and the team from Next. And they said, we think there's going to be an enormous move towards artificial intelligence globally and locally. And when you look at places like the U of T, Ashe Say at the University of Montreal, University of Alberta, with Rich Sutton, you know, Joshua Bengio in Montreal, Jeffrey Hinton here, and then Graham Taylor at, at Guelph. I mean, we're not only educating, but producing some of the most incredible talent on earth in artificial intelligence. If Next was doing the next best thing, you want to get out in front of AI and commercialize some of these great ideas so that instead of the constant brain drain, when Next started 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of accelerators, incubators, or educators in entrepreneurship. So we've been able to help these really smart people like Patricia commercialize their incredible ideas so they would no longer feel compelled to go down to Silicon Valley or go over to the UK or in in some cases what's happening now with the race for AI is big money is being offered by China, by Dubai, the Emirates, Russia to hire some of our top talent. Well, with Next AI and the the dozens or hundreds of companies that we're producing, because we're doing another 25 companies a year at Next AI Montreal, those ideas are staying here. The capital's being raised here. The people are being employed here, but they're tackling global problems. So it was really a partnership between our corporate partners, the academic institutions, and our donors who said, you know what? This is the future. 
How can you help get in front of it? Stop the brain drain. In fact, there's a reverse brain drain. I mean, I invested in a company called Layer 6 years ago when it was getting up and running. And Tommy Putin and Jordan Jacobs, not only did they promise me and commit to me that they would stay in Canada, then they started to hire all these incredible talents in machine learning and natural language processing and, and whatnot from all over the world, all these PhDs that would move to Canada and end up staying here and, and becoming citizens of our country. So lots and lots of reasons why we were excited to be out in front of this with the advice of our partners. So, so exciting. And I suppose, yeah, we are now seeing the fruits of all that effort. And Patricia would love to, as you're the talent that Joe's speaking of, would love to give you a, a chance to tell our listeners a bit about private.ai and some of the amazing work that you're doing in concert with Next.ai. Sounds great. Yeah, I'm really grateful to be here and really grateful to have been accepted to Next.ai. I learned so much through the process. So I come very much from an academic background and it helped a lot putting the, increasing my understanding of how business mentality works. So essentially what we set out to do with private AI is we saw this giant gap in the market where there's no real way of integrating privacy in an easy way into apps, browser extensions, on-premise deployments. And we wanted to create something that was a very generalizable, very lightweight, very fast, that developers could just deploy into their pipeline, either to retrofit their code base to be privacy compliant or to use it in a privacy by design system. So what we've done so far is our first offering, which is a data de-identification suite that allows you to remove names, locations, person and file numbers, organizations, and so on from text, and remove faces, license plate numbers, and person and file text from images and video. Super interesting. And so just so I understand, and this is my job in this podcast is to get to ask the dumb questions to smart people, is what does life look like for some of the clients and customers that you have right now and, and before private AI? And, and what's the actual ultimate problem that you're going to solve for them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So it really depends where they're located. So the ones located in Canada, for the most part, they're getting a push from their customers to integrate privacy into their offering. And that is different from the ones located in Europe, for example, where or the ones with more European-based customers, where they're getting legislative compliance requirement that's pushing them towards integrating privacy. So essentially, you've got a bunch of companies who were either not going to be able to offer the privacy that their customers were requesting, or companies that weren't going to be able to process the data that they wanted to process because of the personal information that was included in it. And another aspect is that if you do want to process the information, be regulatory compliant to regulations like the GDPR or the LGDP that came out in Brazil or the new privacy regulation that's very similar to the GDPR in South Africa, for example, you're going to have to create this whole infrastructure around your data, around getting the right consent for being able to process your data, around tracking where the information is sent within your organization around answering access to information requests to be forgotten. And not only that, when you're spreading personal information around your organization, especially when you don't have to, you're opening yourself up to a higher likelihood of data leaks, for example. And that could lead to loss of customer trust. And that could also lead to pretty large fines. Gotcha. And, and am I right in thinking it's typically enterprises or larger firms who want to buy this type of software? Um, we've got a few of those in the pipeline, but really what we're trying to focus on now are small to mid-sized companies because 
they're the ones who are building up their products and trying to solve this right now. Whereas enterprise may already have thought about it to a certain extent and maybe happy-ish with their solution, but aren't quite ready to make a commitment to a new solution just yet. Okay, cool. And, and what does it take to actually implement the tech? Like, are we talking like, a, is there an attached service to this? Or generally, is it able to be a pretty useful platform right off the bat? Oh, it's useful right off the bat. So all it takes is downloading our SDK. So essentially just a software library that's obfuscated and integrating it with three lines of code. Wow. Very, very cool. I would love to learn even more about this and potentially check it out. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, I would love to give you a demo. And Joe, I'm wondering, when was your first encounter with Patricia and the private AI team? And, and perhaps you may even remember one of their initial pitches. And I'm wondering, maybe, yeah, if something particularly stood out about that. It was uh, in the recruitment process. So we have hundreds and hundreds of brilliant people that applied to our program. And then there's a selection process to get them to selection day, and which in Next AI happens to be over two days, and met her and her team at that. And then in our class settings, and very interesting to think about the interaction when you watch the interaction between people who are so knowledgeable, so skilled in their area of expertise, as somebody that was there really as an observer to watch the interaction was pretty impressive. And again, I think when you think about what problem Patricia's solving, this is a really real issue. It's a big issue. It's very topical. And it is going to continue to be an area of significant growth and a problem that so many businesses are going to need to and want to solve in the coming decades. So again, it's one of the things that we try to instill in our startups is find a problem that is a problem for people all over the world and solve that. Don't be so parochial. And and I think in this case, you're hearing that that is exactly what they've done. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear how you describe me that problem thinking approach. I, I almost imagine like even 10 years ago, I feel like it was still sort of the overnight success. Like we just made a new social network. It, it's just diamonds. We just found them. And then that was the amazing story that was pitched, the, the Silicon Valley wonder. And and perhaps it's something, you know, almost like the Toronto approach or, or the Toronto method. But it sounds like whether it's Next Canada, Next AI in particular, there really is that, you know, let's actually find a real customer problem first and not just pull something out of thin air, which I really respect. I mean, I think it's solving real world problems. And, and that discipline is excellent. Although I'm wondering what life actually looks like as, as part of this. And I imagine it must be incredibly rigorous. And Patricia, I'm wondering if you could talk about what that journey looks like. For sure. So as I mentioned, I come from an academic background where first we build hammers and then we try to find nails. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that was yeah, the, the first opposite thing approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, which, you know, is also a great approach, but for completely different and different environments. So <laughs> we started out with having an idea for a homomorphic encryption product. And we spent a good eight months trying to commercialize this product, but it seemed like only a couple of financial institutions were going to be interested in it. It didn't seem like something that would scale to the level that we were interested in scaling. So we went back to the drawing board and ended up interviewing about 60, 70 people with some of the hypotheses that we had about what would make a good product. And of all of these product hypotheses that we had, all of them would require this layer of privacy that didn't exist in the market. And we would have had to build it anyway. So we started a new set of interviews around this hypothesis that this layer of privacy would be interesting. And it turned out that was 
something that looked like it was actually going to scale quite a bit because we kept seeing this problem pop up everywhere in the world with companies in US, companies in Europe, companies in Brazil interested in something that would solve this problem for them. So ever since we've been working on that pretty tirelessly since I guess April of last year is when we started interviewing. September is when we started building and we launched in January. Super exciting to to hear that timeline and how fast that must have evolved. And yeah, I suppose what it must feel like to find that problem in kind of in the wild and, and in your research and work and then be able to channel your energy so quickly and be supported by a program. It almost is like that lab to lab to product idea in reality. That's really cool. And one thing I'm wondering, and maybe I'd ask this first of you and then maybe of Joe is, I wonder about COVID-19 and how maybe that has affected your experience. It has delayed us by a few months, I would say. There was quite a bit of interest that we were ramping up after launch that died down once, uh, yeah, once March struck. But we've been really lucky in that we were able to close pre-seed investing in June, despite the coronavirus. And we just have really fantastic partners, including Next, that helped a lot. I got to say that the Next Network, if it weren't for them, and during the March to June, July session or or timeframe, we wouldn't have been able to ramp up quite as quickly. So that was really useful. And they did an amazing job at handling the pandemic and moving everything online. Well, Joe, that must be pretty cool to hear. I'm sure uh, making that all uh, magically seamless took a lot of work on behalf of you and the team. I'm, I'm wondering what's been the experience running the broader accelerator during this difficult time? Well, I would say two things. One, there was something that Patricia mentioned that I thought was really important, and that is pivoting or re imagining or rethinking your idea. There are so many companies, and I'll just say, I I, I use 80%. There's an 80% failure rate in startups. People argue with me all the time that it's 90%, but whether it's 80 or it's 90, it's a lot. And, And when you come through our program, and it is pretty rigorous, and it is pretty challenging, and there's a lot of honesty we get that failure rate down to 8% or close to zero. And it's not necessarily failure. It's people pivoting and adapting and saying, okay, here's who we were. Here's what we thought was going to make us a truly successful business. But now that we've done all of the analysis, now that we've gone out and asked all the important potential clients or customers, this isn't what they want. This is, and, and here's what they want. And I've seen so many companies that have pivoted or adapted to that new information and then build a great business. And it's by being flexible and intelligent and really going back and forth with our academic team or our mentor team and having that brutal honesty that people are able to adapt and say, okay, now I know what I need to do to move forward and to truly build something meaningful and magical. Because listen, it's a grind. It's really hard to build a successful business here in Canada or anywhere around the world. And if you don't really know your market, if you don't really haven't really engaged with your customers, you're going to find out six months or 36 months into it that you are on the wrong track. And there's really no recovery at at the 36-month mark other than shutting it down or maybe finding a way to pivot. But it's much harder at that point. So 
I think the program's really helpful from so many perspectives, but that being a, a major one. And we've had a lot of people succeed after the program because they've just said, okay, I wasn't on the right track in the very beginning when this all began, and but I am now. And, and in fact, we've had a number of those examples that have engaged with us recently. And I'm really proud of them for who they became and how they were able to uh, figure it out sooner rather than later and not destroy all of the value and all of the capital that had been invested in them as founders and into their businesses. In answer to your question about COVID and how we've adapted, I have to say that I've been so blessed to have an incredible leadership team. And our head of programming is Alex McGregor, and her team have done a very good job, in my opinion, adapting the program to make it as engaging. In fact, I would say more engaging than it ever has been, even though you don't have that in-person contact and that connection. It did allow our faculty to say, I'm really good friends with so and so one of the people we had in our, our program was Steve Jurvetson, who is really the money behind a lot of what's happened with Tesla and SpaceX or Coastal Ventures, Vinod Coastal's team were able to show up in the classroom in the program. Janet Bannister from Real Ventures. We've had some unbelievable talent come into the classroom and share ideas and share their wisdom and experience in ways. And, and these are people that otherwise would not have jumped on a plane and come to Toronto, but we were able to tap into them and get the benefit of that wisdom and that experience. So I could not be more excited or more proud of what our, our team was able to do in terms of bringing academics into the program that wouldn't otherwise have been available, VCs. And, and, then, and this month, we've got Michael Katchen from Well Simple. Today, we had Victoria Sopic, the CEO of Kids & Co., the most successful daycare business in Canada that's all corporate. We've got, anyway, we've got Mike Serbinas, I know, who's going to come in and speak to the program from League, who's a multi-time founder and giant Canadian success story. So people that otherwise might not have been available because of COVID have said, you know what, of course I can help. And you just let me know where and when, and I'll be there and I'll do my best to deliver. Because we were really nervous. We were really worried that we weren't going to be able to deliver a high quality program all remotely because none of us had ever done it before. But I mean, I, I have to let Patricia and the rest of the cohort be the judge, but I feel very confident that we've done the very best that we can and, and made it as engaging and exciting as we could. That is awesome. Makes me personally very glad to hear that the program has persevered through you know what I think for a lot of organizations has been a difficult time and perhaps even come out stronger. One of the, the pieces I was hoping to nail down even more specifically is right now in the context of AI, where we're at. And perhaps that could link to some of the nature of, of COVID as it's affecting us. But uh, Joe, I wanted to ask you first, are we still in the middle of the hype cycle or, or do you actually find that we are really getting down to business in some of the commercial applications right now? For AI, Jackson? Yes, specifically. Oh my gosh, lots of runway. I, I would tell you between now and 2030, and I'm also very fortunate to be on the board of Singularity uh, University and Greg Kurzweil has written books and talked at length about singularity and, and when we're going to reach that point. Last time I was together with him, he said it was going to be in 2030, but 
in all likelihood, he felt it would be 2027 because he's usually wrong by being too conservative and it would be before that. And that's going to be artificial intelligence driven. So we know that China is spending somewhere between three to $500 billion over the next decade. Russia's spending $120 billion. So the, the race is on. There's so much opportunity, so many incredible ideas to commercialize, so many technologies and types of technology that are going to change the way we think about life and live our life. We had Jordy Rose in the classroom talking about the robotics that he's building in Sanctuary. There's just so much happening. So I think we're still in the second or third inning with so much opportunity and so much upside. Incredibly exciting. And, and you know, Patricia, you're right at the forefront of this in terms of some of the cutting edge research. As mentioned before, you're a computer science PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, one of the top research institutions in the world, particularly for AI. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about some of that research. Absolutely. So the research that I'm doing with my uh, thesis advisor, Professor Gerald Penn, is really based on privacy-preserving machine learning and on combining homomorphic encryption with natural language processing and also speech processing. So homomorphic encryption allows you to perform computations on encrypted data. So you, you can imagine encrypting a one, encrypting a two, adding them together, you decrypt the result and you get a three. So that's long been believed to be something that will be at the forefront of integrating privacy into machine learning and into natural language processing, natural language and speech processing being some of the fields that deal with the most sensitive information that we produce, specifically because one, in speech, you are not only conveying information about what you're saying, you're also conveying information about your socioeconomic background, your education level, your gender or your sex. And speech is being gathered more and more by devices like Alexa, all those personal assistants that are out there. And privacy is becoming a bigger and bigger concern. So it's really about combining privacy technologies with natural language and speech processing in order to make things like Alexa more private, more secure. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of almost news articles and things about Alexa or Google Home, these devices, you know, basically listening to your speech, which are pretty invasive. And, and you think about one, there's the general applications to consumer tech, but two, I think, I mean, hopefully that could resolve a lot of the concerns I think we've been having generally about whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp or Amazon. I mean, all these different companies and kind of having their want to mine your data, but that not really remaining private. And it seems like there's a massive data breach at Target or Visa or Equifax, I mean, one of these large companies, it seems like every few months. So that's incredible that you're working at the forefront of privacy. I'm wondering, in terms of your life, I mean, how do you balance being both a highly talented researcher as well as being a startup CEO? I got to say that my research hasn't been going as quickly as the company. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I guess the balance is the company is really my number one priority. I started my PhD in order to build a company during the PhD. I'm Almost done my PhD, but that almost is taking quite a bit of time because I'm spending basically all the time possible on the company. Awesome. And um, outside of your immediate work, whether it's in your research with your company, is there anything that's particularly exciting for you with AI? Absolutely. So I'm really, really excited about the fact that AI is moving to the edge in particular. So not only is the research moving forward in terms of things like federated learning, which allows you to make inferences and learn directly on device, but also the whole 
infrastructure necessary for deploying machine learning models on the edge is advancing. So you've got Google integrating federated learning into their devices. You've got Apple integrating federated learning into their, their devices through Core ML specifically for Apple. And you've got more libraries integrating differential privacy, like TensorFlow privacy allows you to do differentially private learning on device so that you don't memorize specific information about the training data. So I know you said not necessarily in terms of privacy, but I guess just the fact that you're bringing this learning to the edge means that you're going to have more data to train on, that you're going to have less of a bottleneck in terms of sending that data up to the cloud, less of a bottleneck in terms of having to figure out how to protect that data. So it's really exciting to see the necessities of industry also very heavily driving the sort of research that's happening in terms of machine learning model deployment. Yeah, and I think if I understand some of the implications of, of what you're saying, ultimately, I mean, if we're able to figure out the privacy thing or, or make that dramatically more efficient, even from a computation side, it opens up all sorts of other possibilities to do new and amazing things. Yeah, exactly. So in a lot of cases, for example, if you're looking at automatic speech recognition, there's information about your socioeconomic background, your educational background, and other really sensitive data that doesn't get included in the metadata that gets sent to the companies that are training the algorithms to recognize what you're saying. And this is all information that could be very useful to increase the accuracy of automatic speech recognition systems. So when we figure out how to do that in a privacy-preserving way, either by moving it to the edge or by using de-identification or by training in secure environments, then I think we're going to be seeing a very dramatic shift in terms of accuracy for specific groups of individuals that otherwise wouldn't have had that benefit. So there's that, I don't know if you've ever seen the skit where somebody who's Scottish goes into an elevator and tries to tell the elevator which floor to go to and they're stuck in the elevator because the ASR can't, rec <laughs> can't recognize what they're saying. <laughs> so very fine-tuned models for specific groups of individuals becomes possible with privacy. Super, super exciting, the sort of the personalization of um, tech and, and still maintaining the privacy. And Joe, I'm wondering, you know, with all the amazing companies you're seeing come through your pipeline, your work with Singularity, what trends might be exciting you the most in the space? Oh, well, the things that really blow my mind are actually, you know, a couple that have graduated out of our program, one who's about to embark, which is autonomous trucking, Michael Reed, who's COO there. I, I really believe that the future in autonomous is massive. The opportunity is massive, even if it's not the last mile, even if it's just highway trucking in the next five years, I, I just see that as a massive opportunity in changing the way we do business. And another one is this company, Ribbit, is coming through our program, which is autonomous air flight airplanes. And you can imagine, because we in such a vast country as Canada, but you can think about this anywhere in the world, you know, you can have these airplanes that are basically pilotless. And let's forget for the moment, you know, commercial airlines for passengers. But if you're living in an indigenous community and you're receiving provisions every 14 to 30 days, and now Amazon decides that they're going to, once this technology is ready for the market, 
they want to have a fleet of planes that can bring those goods up to those areas and make it a little bit closer to what we all experience in major metropolitan areas. I just think it just changes the world. It changes our lives for the better. So those are just two very small examples of folks that have come through our program that are are changing our way of life and changing the way of life for so many people in areas that are very, very rural, that just don't have the same access. We're going to give them a lot more access and a lot more opportunity. And over time, it means for a better, stronger, more prosperous rural community in Canada, in rural India, in Russia, places like that. I I think this just brings the world closer together. It's incredibly exciting. And and I think perhaps, you know, coincides with a few other trends in almost the workplace and in general, we've already seen a, a massive, I don't know if outflux is even a word, but outflux of people out of Toronto, out of the GTA, even just during COVID. Um, wanting to move back into more rural or, or more remote communities in the country. And and perhaps these trends, AI, you know, autonomous vehicles, autonomous transport, satellite, internet, I mean, all these different things are kind of coming at the same time. And maybe that's going to enable us to use much more of the available landmass in the world. And things will actually become more sustainable. We won't be overdoing it in certain areas. So who, who knows? I mean, there, there's so many different things happening at once. I'm really excited to hear about number of these different trends from you both. One thing I wanted to push you both on a little bit was, I know we've got the great deport of of Next Canada, a lot of great accelerators, incubators in Canada were at the forefront of some research. But I wanted to ask more generally about some of the support that we're seeing from the public sector. And if from anything you've seen or experienced, if that's actually been meaningful for AI in in Canada. I don't know that the government needs to do too much. What I think they, if I were counseling them is make sure that organizations like ours and Creative Destruction Lab, who we have a very strong relationship with, or the DMZ, make sure that we've got good support, but also make sure policy empowers or enables entrepreneurs out there to continue to take or invest that risk capital into these ventures, into these opportunities. So I'm more of a a believer in a more hands-off approach. So, you know, helping the organizations that help others succeed, I'm okay with that. But make the fiscal policy such that, you know, capital gains and tax exemptions for people that are willing to take their capital and risk it. Because as I say, the failure rate outside of next is 80 to 90%. That's a fairly significant high risk category or investment. You want to make sure as government that you are encouraging that risk taking. And for years, we didn't have it in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. We didn't have it. But once they changed capital gains tax, once they encouraged investment in small business with all kinds of tax exemptions. You saw our commitment to risk capital, to innovation, to entrepreneurship, all start to evolve. And that's what I think needs to continue to happen. Yeah, I know we've definitely seen a a number of those points come up in government advocacy more recently, uh, particularly from the Canadian Council of Innovators. Really, really important here. I think it's critical that community leaders keep putting that forward, especially as I think we're, we're going through even more change with the upcoming federal budget and uh, throne speech. Patricia, I was wondering um, specifically for you, whether it's grants for your research or or even opportunities for your startup, have you felt or seen the support from the government with your AI work? 
Well, uh, I guess the closest thing I've come to seeing that support is through Vector. Vector wouldn't exist, I think, if it weren't for the very generous grant that the federal government provided. And I think the provincial government too, right? And provincial government too, you're right. And also a number of uh, corporate partners. So in that sense, I wouldn't be part of Vector if it didn't exist. And I'm sure that part of the grant, the funding for my PhD came from NSERC, which is the National Science Foundation, essentially, for Canada. And there must be money there for the AI sector. So I assume so, but nothing very specifically AI-focused for the company yet. Yeah, good to know. I'm always interested to ask and sort of hear how, how that's coming along, especially you know during the coronavirus period where there's been a lot of money coming out of the government and going to different places. We're coming up on our time here, guys. I, I wanted to ask, Patricia, first, anything we should know about uh, private AI, any upcoming hires or announcement we should know about? Well, we're always on the lookout for any talent in privacy-preserving machine learning. So if anybody's out there who's interested in talking to us about a potential position, please email me, add me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And, and what's your website link? Just Oh, yes. So our website is www.private hyphen ai.ca. Okay, fantastic. So everyone check that out if you're interested in potential careers uh, with private.ai. And Joe, just want to ask you as well for, for Next Canada, Next AI, any upcoming applications or opportunities that our listeners should know about? Yeah, listen, if you're really, really keenly interested in AI, I know that on September 23rd, Next AI Montreal is having its venture day. October 1st, we're having our Next Canada Venture Day, which will include all three verticals, Next 36, Next Founders, and Next AI. And anybody that is interested in applying to the program, we are in recruitment season. So Lisa Clemenko, who is our head of recruitment, would be somebody to reach out to. And for Next 36, Next AI, or Next Founders, please think about it because our goal as a philanthropic organization is to attract in the most incredible talent, people with great vision, people with great character, people that have a, a, a passion for taking their idea and commercializing it and becoming entrepreneurs. We have all the resources necessary to help you succeed. And so be very, very excited to have anybody who's listening to this podcast. It usually means that you have a keen interest in change and moving forward. We would love to have you. Thanks so much. And, and Joe, for all those opportunities, is that nextcanada.com? Yeah, it is. Fantastic. Well, folks, definitely check those out. I highly recommend all of those programs. I've personally had friends and colleagues and whatnot go through those programs and have an excellent experience, particularly if you're looking to work on the forefront of AI. I, I know a lot of the, the listeners on this podcast are. You should definitely check out those opportunities. Well, Joe, Patricia, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I feel like we covered quite a bit in a short period of time. And I'm grateful to both of you. For all our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Um, as well, you can always check out any of the past episodes on askai.org. Follow us on Twitter at askai.org. And definitely follow us too on, on LinkedIn or connect with us there. We're looking forward to bringing you more excellent content on AI and technology more broadly. Thank you again to our sponsors, Microsoft, and also to Cinchi. Grateful for your support. And we're looking forward to the future. Joe, Patricia, thank you again. Thank you so much, Jackson. Yeah, thanks, Jackson. Thanks for listening to the Ask AI podcast. The executive producer was Chris McLellan. 
Additional production support was provided by Olina Mack and Kristen Riddell. To learn more about our webinar and chatbot projects and get information about sponsorships and volunteering, please visit our website at askai.org or email info at askai.org. Listeners can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Just search Ask AI. Thank you.